0: following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. And good evening, folks. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 10 in our discussion of Inferno. Uh, And tonight, we are actually going to get into discussing the seventh circle. We kind of mostly got down the slope to the second ser- seventh circle last time, but this time we're act- we're doing it. We're just going to do it. We're going to talk about the seventh circle today. Uh, so, we're going to be discussing the violent. We'll see how far amongst the violent we get. Um, but, of course, one thing to. Well, hang on a second. Before I do any preambulatory material, uh, let me do some pre preambulatory material and give a couple announcements. One quick announcement just to mention I've been mentioning this, but uh, the deadline is actually coming up soon um, Text Moot. Uh, so, Text Moot is happening on the 13th of February, our second virtual moot of the year. I hope that folks. Folks, would uh, I know? There's a, a bunch of people already signed up. It's going to be a great crowd. It's still po- the deadline that is approaching. Is that it is still possible to uh, present at uh, TextMoot? So if you go to textmoot.org, you can find all the instructions uh, for submitting ideas or proposals for that. Uh, and I definitely recommend that TextMoot is going to be a lot of fun. And then the second announcement, I talked about this last night. I'll try to talk about this in less detail today, but I'm very excited about it. I've mentioned uh, in the past our Signum Academy Clubs program. It's the uh, Signum's newest program, which we're launching uh, this coming month. Uh, We're we're starting it up officially. Uh, And our clubs program are extracurricular programs in the language arts uh, for uh, school kids uh, from uh, grades 3 through 12. And uh, we're, doing, we're doing book clubs, we're doing creative writing clubs, uh, we're doing language clubs. Um, that I've announced before, but the, um, uh, the exciting news is that uh, we were just approved, by the Board of Education of the state of New Hampshire to participate in a brand new program called the Learn Everywhere Initiative in New Hampshire, which means uh, that by participating in our Signum Clubs program, uh, high school kids in the state of New Hampshire can actually earn school credit um, uh, uh, through participating in our programs. They participate in our programs. We give them a cert. We, you know, we, we, we do our assessments. We uh, uh, give them a certificate and they can cash those certificates in for graduation credits in their schools. Uh, It was a a long and rigorous process that we went through, uh, but we have completed the process. We were unanimously approved. Uh, So the Signum Clubs uh, has, has been evaluated at a really high standard. Uh, for you know, for educational substance and quality by the Board of Education in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, and uh, and definitely, uh, uh, kid, as you say, homeschoolers, homeschoolers can and, abs- uh, and absolutely should use these uh, on their uh, transcripts. Absolutely. Um, uh, that is something that's I mean, unfortunately, the, the downside, of course, like the it's not exactly a downside, but sort of the limitation of uh, the announcement is that it's unfortunately New Hampshire is the only state in the country that has this kind of a program. So unfortunately, it's only high schoolers in the state of New Hampshire who qualify for this for direct participation in this program. But the really exciting thing, uh, I think the, uh, the sort of wider group that can benefit most broadly from this are homeschoolers. People, and I know that a lot of people, you know, homeschooling is at an all-time high since the pandemic began. Uh, and uh, I know that there are a lot of people who are homeschooling and a lot of people who would be really interested in some excellent, reliable, professional supplementation on the language arts front. Uh, and we're going to have a bunch of options for that. And since we've been through, you know, we've we've gone through all of the, uh, you know, uh, the bureaucratic hoops uh with the state board and stuff so we we will be able to provide um you know certificates and you know clear you know all the things that, uh, the, you know, the, whoever oversees your homeschooling in your state, whether it be your school district or the Board of Education or whoever it is, um, will be able to speak their language and tell them about the mastery of their the competencies and show them the assessment patterns and everything will be able to do that. Um, and so it's something that should be a really very useful tool uh, for homeschoolers to be able to participate in our clubs and be able to, to sort of use those uh, towards their home. And again, we... We can't, like, you know, promise that because we don't know, you know, different states and how things work. But we're confident and we're ready to work with folks to try to give them every, you know, support homeschooling families however we can. Um, I think it should be a really fun opportunity. So if you are interested, uh, in participating. If you've got, you know, kids who might be interested in participating, or maybe you're part of a homeschool group who would be interested in learning more, maybe, uh, you know, setting up a group, uh, you know, you could have your own discussion, uh, section basically from your homeschool co-op. We could do that too. Um, get in touch with us. Academy at signum is the contact email, uh, to reach out to, and we would be happy to talk about any, any of these things. Tomas, unfortunately it, this is just, um, uh, this is just for high school uh, students. I know there are a bunch of people who are like, "Hey, I wanna, I wanna do, you know, language clubs like this and stuff." It would be fun, admittedly, uh, but uh, for now, for now, just unfortunately available uh, for uh, uh, not not just high schoolers, but also middle schoolers and upper elementary as well. But there it is. Yeah, I know <laughs> it's it uh, adults grumbling about this. It's it's hard. But in fairness, we've been doing, you know, broadcasting and programs for grownups for a long time. So it's kind of fair, you know, now to uh, give kids a chance. So, um, yeah, Michael points out that youth continues to be wasted on the young. I know it's it's true. It's always been true, uh, certainly. Um, but um, anyway, OK, so that is just a reminder of what's happening now. Um, I would now let's talk about violence. <laughs> so, um, one of the you know we we've we talked we spent okay well we spent almost two classes now the last two sessions uh, discussing the sort of subdivisions of hell and how things are working and everything. Um, I wanted to offer kind of a few general reflections, uh, to begin with on the circle of the violent on the seventh circle of hell. And then we'll, we'll go in and we'll, we'll sort of look at how this has worked out. Um, but, um, Basically, thinking about, you know, we discussed the Aristotelian uh, foundation of it, right? We discussed, you know, we talked about Virgil's explanation of how the lowest two circles, the 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 you know the worst part of hell, the places uh, where the uh, the you know the um, the things which anger God most are, are contained are subdivided. You know, all of it is malice. Malice is what's down there, right? Malice is the overall category. Malice subdivided into malice by force and malice by fraud. Um, and malice by force is violence. Um, And that, of course, subdivided by whom the violence is directed against. Right. So we have the three different zones in the seventh circle, the violent against others, the violent against themselves and the violent against God. Um, And those we will see in Cantos 12, 13 and 14, respectively. Okay. Um, so. um, But I didn't just want to do a review. What I'm wanting to think about is on the one hand, it's one thing for Virgil to say that basically it's been Aristotelian all along, right? That the upper circles were incontinence and that the lower circles are malice. And as we talked about mad bestiality, I, I'm not sure where mad bestiality is. Um, uh, but, um, Sure, and I'm not saying it doesn't work, and I'm not saying that that's not consistent. But um, when we get into violence, the question becomes, or rather, my question. Let me just, not pretend like it's a question which objectively exists. My question is, what's the difference? I mean, we taught we mentioned this a little bit, right? I mean, like we saw folks being there, no end violent against each other, right? Up in the up in the the swamp of the sticks, right? With uh, uh, what's his name, Filippo Argenti. Uh, right. The one that, you know, Virgil kicks and, and then like ends up chewing on himself while everybody else beats the crap out of him. I mean, that's there was a lot of violence, even from Virgil right going on. And and Dante was like, let me at him. So like there was a lot of violence there. Um, and uh, so what's the difference? What's the difference exactly? Uh, why are these people in what? So, I mean, I, apparently. The difference is malice, right? We've got those who did not restrain their desires and those who committed violence by um, through malice. Right. But the, the, the question that I have to that I keep coming back to is, okay, is it about the act? Is it about the act like. Is there something intrinsic in the act? Because it seems to be about the act. Like it would, it would, it would, I mean, like the sort of labels, right, that are being placed on thing seem to be about the things that people did, especially down here, right? Less so up top, right? Like the gluttonous. I mean, okay, I guess that's about, you know, eating, but that's a a more general, it's not, there's not like a specific, I mean, okay, again, you can say eating, but it's not just eating, right? Gluttony involves more than just eating food. Um, (laughs) Gluttony is a frame of mind, right? And that's, of course, what we saw. It was a question of priorities, right? It was a question of, like, the way in which, uh, in the sphere of the lustful, right? Uh, Or not sphere, circle. It's not a sphere. In the circle of the lustful um they uh they suppressed reason right they chose passion over reason they they elevated passion over reason uh and that was that was their their mistake so like, it's not about and we talked about this some at the time back when we were uh talking about canto 5 it's not it's not about sex right um it's not like you know did you have sex with the wrong person if so that's the ring that, you know, that's the circle that you go to. Um, It was always not exactly just about the action. Um, So, but violence. Now, violence seems to be an action. Um, And to differ, perhaps, from the wrath, right? The sort of more, uh, I don't know what, unfocused wrath uh, that seemed to be going on up there in the swamp of the sticks with, with Filippo Argenti and, and, and friends. Um, so does that mean like you, it's one thing to just kind of generally be wrathful, right? But if you cross a line, right? I mean, is, is that, is that what it means? Right? Like if you cross the line, so like it's one thing, if you're just somebody who is like, you know, angry and a jerk to people, that you end up, you know, in the swamp of the sticks. But if you actually cross the line and beat them up or kill them, then down to the seventh circle for you, right? And it seems like that could be one way to understand this, but I don't think that that's right. That doesn't seem to me to fit what we are, are what we see. Um, and it just doesn't seem to me to really make uh, make sense. I would think, or rather, let me tell you what I would expect to see, right? If that were true, then the emphasis would need to be on the actions, right? Like, what did exactly they do, right? Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, and Gerald, I agree with you that the intent does seem to matter, right? Certainly, the the thought or the intent precedes the act. Um, probably, it requires both. But again. The determining thing right, what decides whether you're whether you go down to circle seven through nine right down to the to the bad place in the middle um with circles seven through nine what determines is malice right, which is about intent it 's not about action it 's about intent um, uh, so uh, yeah, and you're absolutely right, Stephen, to be reminding us about. That famous passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, like, you know, if, if you are angry with your brother in your heart, you're still guilty of murder. Right. And, and that that is exactly it's one of the reasons why the a fixation on the deed alone. Right. As the determining factor. Um, again, it's not that it doesn't matter, but it would seem a little bit odd. For that reason, exactly. To say, like, yeah, no, 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 it's not. It doesn't matter what was in your heart. What matters was what you did outwardly. That would seem strange. uh, Strange under the circumstances. Um, Yeah, yeah. So it does seem to be about a distinction. um, A distinction in the nature or what? The tenor, perhaps, of the intention. Right. Of the will behind the actions. Um, And therefore, one of the conclusions that I would that I already am suspecting and I think probably we'll see after we continue our journey through the seventh circle, if I ever permit us to do that, um, is that it's not it's violence itself though it sounds like a mere physical description, right? I mean, that seems pretty clear, right? Those who are violent, okay. Um, But clearly the concept of violence or force, right? Malice by force is um, fairly broad. Uh, And so it's one of the things that I'm, one of the questions that I find myself most interested in thinking about as we go through the seventh circle is, what does he mean by violence exactly? are. What is, in fact, the state of a soul who is guilty of violence against any of the targets in question, self, others, or God? Um, and uh, I think that that will be an interesting thing to look at as we go through. Um, and certainly... Um, uh, and certainly we will see lots of different categories, right? Uh, The word is gonna be used in in what would seem to be some sort of figurative senses or less direct senses, right, fairly quickly. Um, So that said, let's actually do it. Let's take the plunge. Down to the seventh circle we go. Um, This is the last slide we did last time. I promised we'd talk about the parentheses, so I'm going to fulfill that promise. I'm a little hesitant. here's why I'm hesitant. I don't understand it. I'm gonna tell you right now, I think I understand the elements that underlie it, but I don't understand what Dante is trying to suggest by them. Um, so here's um here's here's what we'll do. um I'll try to explain as best I can, the elements that I think he's invoking here. And then you can help me figure out what he's doing, how he's putting all these things together. So, okay, so remember he's describing how, why is there a landslide here, right? Like, why is there, uh, you know, this uh, this landslide of rocks that they're climbing down, how did it get there? And you'll remember that it happened, there was an earthquake uh, right before Jesus came through the gates of hell. Um, and um, uh, and uh, uh, harrowed hell, right? Took, the, uh, took the, the blessed dead out of limbo and carried them off with him to paradise. Um, so he says, I would have you know, the other time that I descended into lower hell, this mass of boulders had not yet collapsed uh, because of course it was pre-crucifixion. But if I reason rightly, it was just before the coming of the one who took from Dees the highest circle's splendid spoils, that, on all sides, the steep and filthy valley had trembled so, I thought the universe felt love, by which, as some believe, the world has often been converted into chaos. And at that moment, here as well as elsewhere, these ancient boulders toppled in this way. Okay, all right, um... So, uh, the elements here. Um, what is the connection between love and chaos? All right. So, the world is composed of chaotic elements. Uh, the everybody knows this. Uh, the fundamental principle of how creation works at its most basic level, right? Um, If you want to go down to um, this... uh, Medieval metaphysicians talking about this kind of thing are kind of like physicists talking about quarks, okay? Um, We're talking about component parts, not elements, right? Not even electrons and neutrons. We're talking about quarks here. What is the basic... um, you know, what are the things made of that make up all things that make up all things, right? So like, for instance, in the human body, you might talk about, uh, you know, how your body is, uh, uh, you know, a balance of several different humors. But those in turn are related to and connected to the four basic elements that make up the entire universe. But those elements in turn are made up of other things as well. And so that, that kind of basic... Level uh, of the universe at its most basic level, like what are the elements made of? The elements are made up of different, of of contraries that are in chaos and at war with each other. Right? Um, uh, This is uh, what God does. If you read Genesis one, of course, what you find is that God, um, God's primary actions in Genesis one are organizational. Right, like God, God imposes order upon the world, and that is very much how the medieval saw the creation process. That the uh, matter itself, like the the the, the basics of matter, um, are in chaos, um, are in discord with each other, are contraries that are at war naturally, and God imposes order on them, uh, and uh, and and so the basis of I was about to say life, but it's not, with, don't talk to me about life. Uh, no, but, uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, we're just reading, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, uh, with my son. Um, but anyway, um, the, uh, the, it's, it's not the basis of life. It's the basis of matter. It's the basis of everything, um, is, uh, expressed in what the medievals would say, the, um, um, the Latin phrase Concordia Discourse. Uh, that is the, 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 the Concord of Discordant Elements. Um, there is a this fundamental tension between these chaotic contraries and them being kind of held together. They are being sort of held together, and that's like the basis of all things. So you take these fundamental contraries, which are things like hot and cold, wet and dry, uh, and you uh, and you you bring them together, and those are what in different combinations, and those are what make the elements. Um, but again, everything is like fundamentally wanting to sort of fly apart uh, and it is um, uh, it is the love of God which imposes order on things. Um, now, why is it then that Virgil is talking about love converting things into chaos, if it's love? Who imp- which basically is the only thing that's maintaining concord among the uh, discordant things. Um, here he seems to be referring to a pre-Christian theory, uh, the Empedoclean theory, which says that if the discordant elements were actually to achieve, were to be brought into real concord, not just tension, right, not just a kind of stasis, right, but into actual, if there to be Concord, then, then chaos would erupt, right, then like the whole system would break down. Um, so if we understand love uh, to mean con- as like synonymous with Concord, right, um, if the discords you know, fall into a unison, then they'll fly apart. Um, and that seems to be what he's referring to there. Now why is he referring to that? <laughs> <laughs> this is what I don't know. So, okay. So, elements Concordia discourse, right? And the tensions upon which uh, order is imposed on chaos by the love of God according to the medieval Christian theology. This idea of um, if you eliminate discord, then it brings chaos, uh, which comes from the pagan world, but again, was still an idea that was, uh, again, remember, they got, they rejected wholesale, relatively few pagan ideas, because the pagans were really, they were ancients, they were really wise. Everybody knows that. So you don't just chuck it out. You might try to explain, sometimes they're just wrong. Sometimes they're just wrong. Um, even Aristotle got some things wrong. Uh, like, for instance, he's, he thought that the world was uh, w- was eternal, right? That, that the universe itself was eternal uh, and did not have a beginning. He was wrong about that. Um, But, you know, it's like a pretty short list of things that Aristotle was wrong about, after all. Um, But, hey, nobody's perfect. Um, So, um, okay, okay. Um, So we've got those, like, metaphysical concepts going on in the background. But then we also have this moment... Virgil is thinking about chaos descending, and he's associating this descent of chaos with the earthquake. Right, the the steep and filthy valley had trembled so I thought the universe felt love, by which, as some believe, the world has often been converted into chaos. He thought for a second the earthquake was so tremendous that he thought for a second things were flying apart. Right, like you know, Empedocles might have predicted because of the, um, uh, uh, because of the, uh, um, you know, unexpected concord come about, and that's what he means, I think, when he says, "I thought the universe felt love, concord, that is unity, right?" Which, in the case of the universe, according to Empedocles, is disastrous. Okay, so uh, he's, uh, in other words, he's saying. Uh, One way to paraphrase Virgil's words there is, that earthquake was so bad, I thought the whole universe was flying to pieces. Right? That's one way to paraphrase what he's saying. But here's the other thing. Remember what we're actually talking about. And I hate doing this because she knows like 10,000 thousand times, more than 10,000 times, more than I do about Dante. But I have to disagree with Berellini here Um, in Berellini's commentary in the digital Dante text that I've been encouraging everybody to use um, and to enjoy her commentary because it's fantastic. But I have to disagree with her here. Um, And what I disagree with her on Um, is not her reading of Dante, really, but her reading of uh, her connection uh, to events in the Bible. I I think she's missing something here. She associates, she talks about the earthquake as if the earthquake were a consequence of Jesus's arrival of the harrowing of hell. But it's not. That is not the earthquake that Dante is describing here that Virg, that Dante the poet, that Virgil the character, is describing here. It is not the fact, as Barrowini seems to imply, or seems to assume, I don't know, that basically when Jesus arrives at the gates of hell and kicks in the gates of hell and brings out the saints, that in that moment, right, like the concussion of Jesus breaking in the gates of hell is what causes the earthquake. It's not what causes the earthquake. It's very clear on that. He says it was just before the coming of the one. The earthquake didn't happen when he came. It happened right before. And, of course, we know what earthquake he's talking about. Because, of course, exactly as Bruce was just pointing out in Matthew 27, 51, we're told it is at the moment of Christ's death that there is an earthquake. Like In Jerusalem, we're told there's an earthquake, right? The Gospels record an earthquake happening at the time, at the moment of Jesus's death, which, of course... Logically, would indeed be just before he comes to, his spirit comes down to hell. right? So yes, Jesus has just died, His corpse is still nailed to the cross, and his, and here he comes, right? Now he's coming to descend to hell. That's exactly what we would expect. So the earthquake which caused the damage here is not the earthquake of Christ's coming to hell. It's the earthquake associated with his death. With the crucifixion itself, and that to me seems to me to be um, uh, completely well. I won't say completely. It seems very significantly to change um, the analysis that Berolini is doing. And again, it's I'm not questioning her analysis of Dante. I'm questioning her the connection to scripture that she's uh, uh, that she's working on there, um, because to me it it makes a pretty big difference. Um, Quite a big difference. She speaks of the, like, you know, the concussion of Christ's coming as like an evidence of how, like, the weakness of hell and its being able to stand against Jesus, right? Like Jesus's arrival uh, is so tremendous uh, that like hell itself like shivers and is damaged by it. <clears throat> now, I'm not saying that's terrible reading, like, no doubt, like that could be, but that's not. What's being described? What damaged hell was not Jesus's advent to the underworld? What damaged hell was Jesus's death? And Jocelyn, no, I do not think there are two earthquakes. There is but one earthquake. I, I, it's there. Hap- this is happening at the same time. Um, I don't see any reason to question that the earthquake which the Gospels record as occurring in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus's death is the same earthquake that's happening, that the tremors of, like, the the ripple effect of the death of Christ on the cross is what causes the shuddering of the entire world. Um, And now I come back to... um, Bruce thinking along very similar lines to you are here um I'm coming back to the question of love right Virgil's like it was like a love quake <laughs> right well, yeah, yeah, if it was the crucifixion quake then yes it 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 was it was um this. greatest expression of God's love and sacrifice for humanity. But it's not only that either. Um, uh, It's um, yeah, yeah. Um, Ken, am I postulating a physical earthquake? Yes. Or rather, I am postulating that the physical earthquake I, I, the Gospels record a physical earthquake so that's like a fact right that's that's one of the facts that we're coping with here right um, that that earthquake was felt in hell suggests uh, William maybe it was a spiritual earthquake well yes it certainly was I mean the moment of Christ's death on the cross, um that uh echoes of that are felt both physically and spiritually would seem no strange thing um uh again especially thinking about christian doctrine and jesus as the you know the union uh of god and man in that way both physical and spiritual earthquakes jennifer exactly that there i don't i don't think there's a there's a distinction here um yeah yeah um Uh, Jocelyn, I love the idea that there is actually a phenomenon in seismology called love waves. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, do the actual geological? Uh, uh, does the actual geological phenomenon of love waves allegorically map onto this? I bet you we could make it do. I bet you we could make it do. I bet we could turn we could turn that into an allegorical. Uh, uh, trope for the love of God, but I don't know enough about that seismological uh, 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 feature to do it. Um, But uh, that's pretty cool. Anyway, um, okay, so... Now, there's another element here, right? There's like another layer then that has to be added on top, though. This is Virgil saying this. And Virgil doesn't understand Virgil does not himself I Virgil's a pagan Virgil doesn't is not necessarily a reliable not not that he's an unreliable witness it's not that I doubt his testimony of what he's saying but I mean I'm sure the earthquake did happen at that point but um, uh, that that's not what I mean but does he understand I mean the fact that he he admits here, That his interpretation of the event was, of course, as should not be shocking, based on a, you know, piece of pre-Christian metaphysics, right, of, uh, uh, you know, pre-Christian cosmology. Um, He doesn't, does Virgil understand himself, really, what happened at the crucifixion? To what extent? Does he understand that he saw, he seems to I mean, he seems to, you know, he knows about God and he understands how things work generally. Um, but, David, I am also inclined, as you're suggesting, to hear some dramatic irony here. Absolutely. Um, that um, uh, we understand, perhaps, again, as uh, that educated Christians reading this text in the Middle Ages would understand better the significance of that earthquake and what it has to do with love and chaos. Um, so I don't I don't think I have a real like joined together reading of this passage exactly. Like what do I think Dante the poet is like trying to get at? Or like what are the, you know, how do we exactly understand this? Um, but what I would need to think about more is I would need to think about more the connection between the crucifixion. That is the moment of the death of Jesus as distinguished from the moment of the harrowing of hell, which is immediately afterwards and the moment of the resurrection, which comes after that, right? Those are though. All three of those are important metaphysical moments, but they're different metaphysical moments. Um, uh, and this is where, th- that's the sort of footnote that I would give several of you who were talking before about associating the, you know, the crucifixion of Jesus with the love of God. And obviously that's true. Um, but the death itself, um, the resurrection, I'm not saying the crucifixion isn't associated with, but, uh, okay. To be more precise, what I'm saying is don't lump everything all in together, right? Um, It's not just about the sacrifice and the atonement, right, as a whole package, right? It's about the death, specifically, about the crucifixion, exactly. Um, uh, I mean, remember, at the moment that this earthquake is happening... Like the echoes of Jesus's voice crying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me are still like ringing out somewhere. Right. That's the moment when this earthquake happens. Um, Love and chaos. Right. God incarnate has just died. Love and chaos. Um, uh, Is the world flying to pieces For a minute there, it looked like that might be what's happening, right? Um, And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the Apostle John, you know, uh, standing at the foot of the cross might not have thought the same thing about the world flying to pieces in that moment. Um, So, anyway... um, So there's me not answering the question, but I hope I uh, sort of raised enough issues. Uh, you know, maybe we can keep kind of wrestling about it and thinking about it. Um, but uh, but I better move on if we're actually <laughs> to get to the seventh circle of hell tonight. So we passed the Minotaur and down we go. Um, and we meet centaurs down at the bottom and, and we meet a centaur who threatens them. And the centaur who threatens them... Well, he's about to explain. My master told him, We shall make reply only to Chiron when we reach his side. Your hasty will has never served you well. Then he nudged me and said, That one is Nessus, who died because of lovely Deianira, and of himself wrought vengeance for himself. And in the middle, gazing at his chest, is mighty Chiron, tutor of 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 Achilles. The third is Pholus, he who was so frenzied and many thousands wheel around the moat their arrows aimed at any soul that thrusts above the blood more than its guilt allows once again we find mythological figures who are both fitting to be among those souls whom they're surrounded by right um that is like nessus is nessus guilty of violence against others yeah Mhm. And the centaurs centaurs were famously violent um in more than one sense but, but they they were vi- they are both in the sense of they're likely to murder you um and also in the sense that they're likely to rape you that was a, i mean sexual violence was very strongly associated uh with centaurs um in Greek and Latin tradition. Uh, and this is a, a kind of a trend same with fauns. Right. Same with, uh, uh, you know, same with with uh, with fawns. that if something is part human and part beast, that's probably a bad sign. Right. Um, that probably indicates that this the human reason of this person is not completely driving the bus. And that seems to be again, there's a correlation there. Um, uh, and just as we were kind of talking about with the Minotaur, right, in his head, his his beast's head uh, on his human body. Um, The Minotaur, of course, is the product of unnatural desire. Um, The mating of Pasiphae, the the human queen with the bull. Um, uh, And... Which, again, was about... Well, it's about lots of things, but you can say certainly the desire of Pasiphae is often given as an example of subordinating reason to desire. Right. Um, so. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Devorah says, I don't know if I can see Mr. Tumnus the same now. You know who agrees with you, Devorah? Tolkien. Um, I strongly believe that this was one of the very first things that put Tolkien off Narnia. He got as far as Mister Tumnus taking Lucy back to his cave, and this is why he wrote that famous letter to Lewis, saying, "What are you doing? Like you can't do this kind of thing." Um, and and and, and uh, you know, and Lewis, of course, is is openly playing with it, right, with the books on Mister Tumnus's shelf. Lewis knows the tradition fully well, right? Um and uh and of course it is is deliberately playing on that. I mean you have a fawn and what is the first thing he does? He does? Seizes a young human lass and takes her back to his cave and kidnaps her, right? I mean it's it's that's that's the way it is. Um but um uh yeah yeah so uh no, no and I'm not of course please nobody misunderstand the point is lewis was was changing that right he was playing on that tradition um and he was altering that tradition but he was deliberately playing on that but Tolkien was not cool with that um just because he's like yeah I, no you can you can't you can't do that that's not alfons work you're doing it wrong um <laughs> you're doing it wrong um but um anyway Okay, uh, enough about Narnia. Back to hell. Um, now you're right, uh, Jennifer. Yes, that Chiron is Chiron is the one singled out by Virgil that is, is the only one they'll speak to, right? And he is famous. on the one he's still a centaur, right? And he's still down there with all the other centaurs, but he is famously wise. Um, he was known for his he was the, he was he was the tutor of achilles and others um uh, so he was a famous wise teacher but still a centaur um so you know reason was higher than average in him like average for centaurs uh but uh but still at the end of the day centaur um yeah now um yeah, now, Bruce, you, you you notice, of course, the human-animal hybrids are especially clustering around down here, right? Um, Medusa is technically a human-animal hybrid with the snaky hair, but it's a little bit less... It's more of an accessory, you know, than something essential. Um, uh, but um, uh, not to mention the fact that we're not even 100% sure if Medusa was really there, or if the Furies were just jerking Virgil's chain. Um, but... Um, Uh, But anyway, here we get first the Minotaur and then the Centaurs. Um, And so this seems to me to be our first kind of hint as to what the kind of thing that's being punished down here. Right. Which, of course, I can't help but think about mad bestiality again. Mad bestiality being that third Aristotelian category that Virgil cites. Right. Incontinence, the inability to control yourself. Malice and mad bestiality, and as soon as we descend into malice, what do we find? Mad beasts or mad part beasts, right? Um, And the harpies, David, exactly. We're going to get to the harpies very soon, too. Also, uh, human-beast hybrids there as well. Um, So, yeah, the human-beast hybrids come come uh, thick and fast down here, and that so I don't know. So I'm beginning to think that mad bestiality is kind of an overlay, <laughs> right? It's it's maybe more than it's, you know, there, there isn't a place for it. It's a I don't know what. Um, but I, I still don't really get it. But it seems to be involved here. Um, but again, in trying to think about how to understand what does it mean to be violent against others right now? Let's think about Nessus. Um Nessus, who died because of lovely Dianira, this is one of those things you're supposed to know. Um, Dante assumes that you're familiar with this story, um, and in case you're not, Nessus was a centaur who fell in love with Dianira, but she was already uh, Heracles' girl. Um, uh, so, um, Nessus tried to rape her, like centaurs do. So, like he, uh, you know, grabs Dianira and he, like you know, drags her off. Um, Heracles catches up with him and shoots him with his bow, with his arrows that are tainted with the hydro poison. Um, you know, he's, you know, uh, Heracles has his famous bow of poisoned arrows, uh, bow with poisoned arrows. Um, so, um, yeah, exactly, Bruce. So this is, uh, this is the one with the shirt, the, the blood shirt. Um, so he... Nessus is dying, right? Nessus gets Heracles' poisoned arrow and he he can tell that he's dying and he's still got Danera there, right? So he tells her, he's like, Heracles uh, is one day, he's going to tire of you someday. So here's what you do. T- take this shirt, dip it in my blood, um, and that will serve as a love charm. Uh, so if you ever worry that you know, Heracles is straying on you and thinking of leaving you for someone else. Have him put this shirt on and it will bind him to you in love forever. Um, and so, and she was kind of a sucker and believed him and she does it. She dips it in his blood, which of course, of course tainted with the Hydra venom uh, so that when eventually, of course it does happen uh, and Heracles is wandering off and she gives him the shirt and he puts it on, it kills him. Um, the venom like works in through him. So he's in this like shirt of poison pain um, in which his own poison is coming back to him. And that's ultimately what kills him. So that's what Virgil means when he says of himself wrought vengeance for himself, of himself, of his own blood wrought vengeance for himself, brought about the death of Heracles. OK, great. Now, allegorical, you know, let's think about that on the allegorical level. What does that mean and what does that tell us about the violent against others, right? Nessus is one of our first clear exemplars of the violent against... I guess, okay, the Minotaur was our first exemplar, um, but our second exemplar here is, um, though he was kind of a, well, marginal in the sense that he's on the margins, right? He's, uh, he's uh, uh, on the boundaries there. Um, of himself wrought vengeance for himself. His own cause of death brings about the death um, brings about the death of his enemies Um, or his enemy singular. his great enemy. This link that Nessus' example establishes between his vengeful desire to destroy his enemy which is violence against others, right? Definitely malice involved with Nessus, no question. And his own destruction, right? His own self to his own death, his own self-destruction, the blood that was, you know, coming out of him, his life blood spilling out that was, you know, in the moment of his death is made into the instrument of his violence. And uh, so again, the, the this link between and of course, it's also a link which redounds on Heracles himself, right? Heracles act of violence against Nessus becomes his own death stroke as well. So with Nessus and Heracles, we can see this kind of mirrored, right? This sort of mirrored connection between the violence against others and one's own death and how those things. So one of the conclusions that I draw from this therefore is, um, is this link? Right. This essential connection between violence and self-destruction we will make a distinction there when we get to the next circle or when we get to the next zone. Right. That is the violence against themselves. Those who are violent against others are not violent against themselves in the same way that the violent against themselves are violent against themselves. Um, not quite as literally. And yet it seems to be a common link Um To put this another way, let me say I don't think it's an accident that the violent against themselves are in the center of this circle. Um, They seem to me to be kind of the common, uh, in one sense, I don't want to go too far. But what I'm almost wanting to say, it's almost like the purest example of violence total, right? Like, everyone who is guilty of violence, everyone who is guilty of malice by force, is ultimately harming themselves, is ultimately destroying themselves. It's all in Boethius, of course. Um... um, Yeah, good. Stephen, that's really good. Nessus's blood being used for violence as well as the blood the other violent are in seems conspicuous in the light of our discussion about the crucifixion and love associated with Christ's blood. Yeah, yeah, okay. So uh, one step at a time there, Stephen. Yes, I agree. Um, The fiery poison in the blood of Nessus seems a conspicuous thing to bring up when we've got people standing in, like, a fiery river of blood, right? So, agreed. That's, that connection seems... is another thing that makes Nessus seems to me to make Nessus like the exemplar of violence against others in a sense. Right. Um, that might be too much to say, but he's one of the clearest, one of the ones whose stories we get. He's one of the first that we meet uh, down here. Uh, and one of those whose stories we get. And of course he becomes the guide, right? It is on Nessus that uh, Virgil and Dante ride across the river here. Um, So, uh, uh, so there's, you know, other reasons to see him as really sort of central, but Stephen, you're absolutely right to be thinking of the blood that does not bring destruction, but that brings salvation, right? That brings forgiveness, that wipes away suffering rather than bringing it. Or Stephen, to put that in a different way, to put your same observation the other way around, that the blood of Nessus is like a hellish inversion of the blood shed by Christ, right? Nessus sheds blood as he dies and through that blood, fiery death and destruction is visited upon his enemy, right? Um, his own blood becomes the instrument of malice, whereas while the earthquake is happening, Jesus's lifeblood is being shed and that blood is the instrument of forgiveness and mercy. That reversal, that... that um mirror reversal between the blood of Nessus and the blood of Christ. That seems to me a very important and to, to point to a very important principle here again, to give us a really interesting data point about what's, why is violence such a big deal, right? Uh, what does this mean? Um, it isn't just about the act of like raising your hand against someone else in anger, right. About, you know, Striking someone or even killing someone. Um, If Nessus is to be taken in some sense as the kind of exemplar uh, here in this circle, then I wonder uh, if it's fair to draw the conclusion that violence against others, understood in this way, it's that what we mean by violence is violence... uh, Sort of, um, hmm, try and choose my words really carefully, but fundamental deviation from how things are supposed to be, um, but not like an accidental deviation, right? A rebellion against how things are meant to be um nessus's violence act right nessus's blood and his death taken in this way right sort of seen juxtaposed against the blood of the crucifixion um is in fact like a mockery of salvation itself that's a big deal that would seem like a big deal um uh let's uh and yeah as jameson points out um Vengeance is a big deal, right? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, uh, except Nessus seems to have laid claim to that, too. Jameson, you're, you're right about that. Um, and, um, yeah. And, Sylvia, I agree. So much blood is a big deal. I agree. That's the, the, the fact that that blood, it's blood and blood and fire, right? Blood and fire are the two, what, motifs? Of this zone, right? Blood and fire, um, and um, really of the whole circle, the whole seventh circle is all about blood and fire. Um, blood and fire in different proportions. Here we're especially heavy on. Here we get both, right? In the next zone, we're going to be heavy on the blood, less so on the fire. In the next zone, more on the fire and less so on the blood. But, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. All right, let's keep let's keep thinking here. A little farther on, the centaur stopped above a group that seemed to rise above the boiling blood as far up as their throats. He pointed out one shade, alone, apart, and said, Within God's bosom, he impaled the heart that still drips blood upon the Thames. Then I caught sight of some who kept their heads and even their full chests above the tide, among them many whom I recognized. And so the blood grew always shallower, until it only scorched the feet. And here we found a place where we could ford the ditch. So the the souls of the damned in this portion, the violent against others, um, there are different grades of punishment, right? Some are in the, f- the fiery blood are up to their necks. Some are up to their, you know, chest or, you know, their midriffs. Um, others only have their feet uh, in uh, so this seems to be a difference of degree. I'd um, see Thomas, uh, D- uh, David. No, I'm um, I'm forgetting this. I'm, I'm forgetting his name already. It's a sensational tale of the time, basically. Uh, the business about the heart that still drips blood upon the Thames. I'm forgetting already the sainted dude. But it wasn't Beckett. It was a. It was a different. Um, uh, a different. English dude. Um, But uh, notice who else is down here? Attila is down here. Um, One trend that is very noticeable among those who are violent against others are tyrants. Tyrants who doubtless were guilty of actual physical, I mean, they probably killed some folks and and led some folks to get killed. Um, But that seems to be not the only or the primary point exactly. Um, Or rather, I think perhaps we should see an extension of that, that the very act of tyranny itself, um, uh, you know, of uh, usurpation or tyranny is an act of violence. Because remember... In Virgil's explanation, before we even got here, we were told it's not just murderers who end up down here. Yes, murderers, but also tyrants, also thieves, those who steal other stuff. That is still violence against other people. Um, It's not only just narrowly literal uh, violence. Um, Yeah, Bruce, I agree. This... um, this is a trend that we see, uh, uh, you're right, that we, we've we already seen it before. The people who are, we saw it in the Swamp of the Sticks, people who are up to different levels, and some of them were submerged completely in the swamp, right? Um, we'll see, again, a similar thing uh, when we get down to the Ninth Circle, exactly as you're anticipating there, Bruce. Um, this seems to be, again, I, I to me, this seems to come back to the the representation of the way in which the physical body is used as a sort of visual manifestation, even a visualization perhaps uh, of the spiritual torment being visited upon these people, um, that that kind of measuring stick is often used, like what percentage of your body is submerged in the un. Pleasant and extremely painful substance, right? That is that is definitely a trend that happens in multiple places. We saw it even with the heretics, uh, uh, potentially. Um, uh, so yeah, it's definitely a repeated pattern, and seems to be. I again, my association with it is as that kind of uh, a visual, a visualization uh, of the different uh, of these different degrees. How do you express? the different degrees of of suffering, the different degrees of guilt uh, in this area. Um, And that's how it's being visually manifested. Um, Okay. Next zone. Um, There's more we could talk about there, but let's get into the dark forest now. Um, And uh, Virgil gives Dante a test here. Um, And I don't know... How many of you were able to pass this test? It's, it's an Aeneid test. This is Virgil saying, how carefully did you read my poem, Dante? Um, so he sees the forest with these trees. And my kind master then instructed me, before you enter farther, know that now you are within the second ring and shall be here until you reach the horrid sand. Therefore, look carefully. You'll see such things as would deprive my speech of all belief. From every side, I heard the sound of cries, but I could not see any source for them, so that in my bewilderment, I stopped. So he hears the crying of voices, but doesn't see any people. I think that he was thinking that I thought so many voices moaned among those trunks from people that who, had, who had been concealed from us. I love that line. I think that he was thinking that I thought. Um, yeah, anyway, I think that he was thinking that I thought so many voices moaned among those trunks from people who had been concealed from us. So the suffering people are hiding in the behind, the, you know, what well, behind the tree. Um, yes. Therefore, my master said, if you would tear a little twig from any of these plants, the thoughts you have will also be cut off. Then I stretched out my hand a little way and from a great thorn bush snapped off a branch at which its trunk cried out. Why do you tear me? Now, I call this a literature test because this is an allusion to a very famous passage in the Aeneid. Um, when Virgil, no, sorry, when Aeneas in the uh, Aeneid first, he first comes to land at a place that he, he thinks is going to be great to settle down in. Um, you know, they've, of course, the premise of the Aeneid is Aeneas has escaped with a bunch of Trojan refugees and they're trying to, you know, found, they're going to find a, a new place to build a new city. And so they find a place that looks like it's going to be a great place. And he goes up on this hill, and on this hill there are these uh, saplings that are growing out of the ground. And he pulls up a sapling. And when he pulls up a sapling, the roots of it drip human blood. And he's very alarmed, understandably, by this, right? Um, So he... Being an empiricist, pulls another one up to see what happens, and lo and behold, more blood. Right? So he pulls another one up, and when he pulls, and then a voice comes out of the hole, the bloody hole in the ground, and the voice comes out and says, "Ow, knock it off." I'm paraphrasing. In the Latin, it's more elegant. Um, But he's like, "Stop it, that hurts," says the voice coming out of the ground, and he tells him who it is. It's Polydorus, who is a Trojan who was sent, one of the sons of Priam, I think. Priam had so many sons. Um, I think one of the sons of Priam, whom Priam sent uh, to Thrace? I think it's Thrace. Uh, anyway, to the foreign country where they are uh, in order to ask for help, you know, in the war against the Greeks. And uh, the local potentate, instead of honoring, you know, the uh, allegiance that, you know, the, the, the alliance that they had murders the sun mur- murders Polydorus and leaves his body out on the hillside. Um, and the, sp- the spears with which they murdered him, the spears they stabbed into his body, those flower into the saplings, right? So the the saplings that he's pulling out are the spears that actually killed Polydorus there in his extremely shallow grave. Um, uh, and his voice comes up and says, Please stop. That hurts a lot. Um, okay. So. That's the famous scene from the Aeneid that Dante is recalling here, and which Virgil seems to, he's he says, break off a branch, and when he breaks off a branch, blood comes out of the end of the branch um, and a voice emerges from the tree. You know, from the tree or the bush. Why do you tear me? Um, So it's like, very like, what happens in the Aeneid, but it's also significantly different from what happens in the Aeneid. Um, and uh, the way that, I mean, Virgil, like, tells him to go do it. Like, you'll understand better once you break off this, once you break off one of those branches. Right? So he stirs Dante on to do and then tries to see if we can figure it out. Right? Um, he's not, he, he, he's, he's really cagey with Dante here. Um, and It's Dante's memory of the Aeneid that's going to really help him here. So, okay. Um, And then when it had grown more dark with blood, it asked again, Why do you break me off? Are you without all sentiment of pity? We once were men, and now are arid stumps. Your hand might well have shown us greater mercy, had we been nothing more than souls of serpents." as from a sapling log that catches fire along one of its ends, while at the other it drips and hisses with escaping vapor, so from that broken stump issued together both words and blood, at which I let the branch fall, and I stood like one who is afraid. He reacts just like Aeneas does, uh, when Aeneas sees the blood and then hears the voice. Um, uh, And David, I don't know how to parse this either. Uh, Like, Dante gets in trouble, right? Like, he gets yelled at by the spirit for breaking off the branch. Why do you break me off? Are you without all sentiments of pity? Well, he was just... He's got... Jocelyn, Virgil did set him up. That's exactly what happened, it seems, right? Why? Why do we think Virgil sets him up? Um... Is it because Virgil lacks pity for these souls? That image, by the way, the, uh, this is one of my favorite epic similes in the whole Inferno. Um, the sapling log, uh, which catches fire on one end and then is dripping and hissing out the other end, that, that, that as the metaphor uh, for the way that the blood is sort of spitting and bubbling out the end with the word, like the words emerge uh, from the end of the stick, spitting and hissing, uh, with the you know the, the 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 drops and bubbles of blood that are emerging. It's um, very evocative, right? Very evocative, and of course about fire as well, right? I said that this part of the seventh circle is light on fire and heavy on blood, Um, but notice in the in the in the simile we get fire. Um, uh, The words and the blood emerging from the end of the stick is as if it's pushed out, right? As if it's uh, 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 sent out by the fire that's burning the other end of the stick, which you know it probably is um uh yeah now leanne that's a really really good point leanne says that um she's struck by the politeness of this interaction with the tree, uh, the interpretation I'd heard of Dante's reactions to the damned souls he meets as being one of misguided sympathy at first, progressing to righteous anger as he starts to get it, i.e., in the circle of the wrathful. She says, "My interpret, you know, she says, she says your interpretation is completely different and makes a lot more sense to me." But now I wonder how this encounter fits in. Why are they so nice to the suicide? Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree that I don't think that his righteous anger or how righteous is it, really? His anger, in any case, uh, against uh, Filippo Argenti is, um, I I don't think, necessarily, a sign that he gets it. Um... Uh, so I guess, I guess I'm kind of harsh, Leanne, aren't I, on Dante, that I, I take both, uh, both his swooning uh, and apparent sympathy uh, with Paolo and Francesca and his anger against Filippo Argenti, both as bad signs, right? Um, it shows he's not getting it anywhere at all. Um, but you're right, Leanne, that this is different, right? Um, how is it different? Why is it different? Let's, um, well, let's keep, let's, let's, let's keep going. Cause the pity is to me you know, the they're asking for pity, right? The tree asks him for pity. You could have had pity. My sage said wounded soul. If earlier he had been able to believe what he had only glimpsed within my poetry, if he hadn't failed the poetry test, then he would not have set his hand against you. But it's in, incre- but it's incredibility made me urge him to do a deed that grieves me deeply. But tell him, you who were, sorry, tell him who you were, so that he may, to make amends, refresh your fame within the world above, where he can still return. Virgil expresses great pity. Now, yes, he did set Dante up and uh, create this unmerciful situation where additional suffering was inflicted uh, on the tree. Um the tree soul, or the soul tree, I suppose, more accurately. Um, But he says he didn't do it out of a lack of pity. Um, It grieved him deeply to do that. But he had to. It's Dante's fault. It's Dante's fault. Um, Dante wouldn't have believed him. How does he know Dante wouldn't believe him? Because Dante didn't believe him. Right? Had he been a better reader of the Aeneid, he would have understood what was happening here. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Stephen, I too see a distinction like that. Um, Stephen says in prior circles, Dante was drawn in and was sympathizing with the sins which is wrong. Here he's not sympathizing with suicide itself. But he's having pity on the soul. Yeah, that does seem to me to be an important difference. Um, The pity towards the person, right? As opposed to sympathy with the experience. Um, He was certainly, if he was having sympathy, it was sympathy with the whole courtly love. It's not that he was, like, perceiving the soul of Paola or Francesca and saying... Oh man, like I feel so bad for you. No, he was like, "Oh, love, I've been there, man. I get it, right? I feel you, right?" In which case, he wasn't actually feeling them; he was feeling himself, right? With Filippo Argenti, he was feeling anger, right, which seemed to reflect Filippo Argenti's own frenzy. Um, uh, But here, um, here we um, we seem to get pity towards the soul themselves in ways which obviously we didn't get with Filippo Argenti, but I, I would argue we didn't get with Paolo and Francesca either. Um, so I do think that that seems to be somewhat of a difference. Um, and conspicuous, I think, in the, in the circle of the suicides. Um, Sarah Duncan's, is there a benefit to being remembered in the world above in the mindset of the time? It's not the first time it's been mentioned as a positive. Yeah, sir. I mean, it seems to be, right? It seems to be. Um, on the one hand, I don't know, like, on the one hand, it doesn't matter. I mean, we know about fame, right? I mean, check your Boethius if you're wondering whether fame in the world is of any lasting value, Right? Spoiler, no. Um, but, so, yeah, it's not like that's like the ultimate... Like, hey, yeah, you know, <clears throat> doomed to eternal damnation. But here's the positive side. Uh, a small number of people in, a, in you know, a few... Ta- or even hundreds of thousands of people over several centuries are going to speak better of you for a little while. So, you know, um, I'll let that comfort you, I guess. Um yeah, yeah. Um, William, I have always thought the same thing. It's one of the things I don't get about this. I don't get about Virgil in this exchange. I, I don't feel like I really understand what Virgil's doing here. Uh, what William just said was, hang on, the guy in the Aeneid was murdered. Um, and these people are suicides. I, I agree. There are so many differences. I mean, yes, it's like the whole blood and words thing. Yes, is similar. Um, and it's kind of a talking, a bloody talking tree in both places. Kinda. Right. So it's not that there are no connections. It's not, it's not like I can't track with Virgil here, but I agree with William. William says, like, how on earth was he supposed to guess that? Right. I mean, the, these people aren't murder victims in that, in the, not in the way that Polydorus was. I mean, Polydorus, his words were all about how he'd been done wrong. Right. Um, and that seems to be quite different from the situation of these suicides. Even if you, um, even if you overlook the sort of difference in framework, which I think is significant, right? Instead of having the, because the trees growing out of Polydorus were not Polydorus. He was still down in the ground underneath it, right? Um, uh, the tree was the spear. Had Aeneas broken off a bit, you know, a, a branch from the, the sapling, it wouldn't have done anything to Polydorus, right? So how was, how was that a fair test? How is was it a fair literature test? Um, but, you know, okay, literature test is my own somewhat humorous characterization. What Virgil actually says is, he talks about its incredibility, right? Had I told him, These trees are souls, the souls of suicides. He wouldn't have believed me. But I have to admit, William, I have a hard time believing that. I mean, oh, sea of all good sense, right? Uh, I mean, the way Dante talks to Virgil, like, seriously, do we really think that had Virgil just been up front with him, right? See this one? Each one of those trees is the soul uh, of a suicide. That Dante's really going to be like, Nah, you got to be pulling my leg, Virgil. Yeah, I can swallow a lot of stuff, but don't you start trying to put that on me. Right? No way. No way. Um, Really? Really? um. Yeah, I don't know. Now, you're right, David, and and, as you might have heard, I was uh, kind of correcting myself on this as I was talking, because you're absolutely right. Suicides are murder victims. That's why they're here. Um, They are murder victims. And this, by the way, is why suicide is a sin. Um, And I know it might see and and, and, and please, you know, I meant to say this before we entered the dark wood here— I totally, I don't want anyone to feel that I'm being flippant and talking about suicide. I know that there are lots of horrible things that we are talking about in the course of uh, Inferno, um, but I know also that... Uh, The circle of the suicides is a little bit more triggering, perhaps, than many of the other things that we're looking at. Um, And I I don't want to be insensitive to that or or, or seem to be insensitive to that. Um, I mean, I am going to discuss what we see, and I am going to talk about the medieval attitude towards it, um, which was very different from the modern attitude towards it. And the um, primary—their approach to it was fundamentally logical. It was—and it it remains a perfectly rational— Uh, understanding of the situation with suicide. Suicide is a sin because it's murder. You're killing someone. It happens to be yourself, but you don't have the right to kill yourself any more than you have the right to kill someone else. It remains... Again, they were very logical about this. Logically, it remains murder. Now, you will hear it said uh, that suicide is one of the uh, the, like suicides are like not buried in consecrated ground. Why is that? Why are suicides not buried in consecrated ground? Answer because suicides and suicides alone we you know medieval Christians could know are going to hell. right? If a bad person dies, I mean a horrible person, you know that person is a horrible person. You can't be a hundred percent sure that that person is in hell. You could suspect, right? You could have a, a pretty good suspicion that that horrible, horrible person who just died is probably burning in hell right now, right? But you can't know for sure, right? Because maybe they repented, right? Maybe they repented on their deathbed. You don't know, and that can happen. They could have achieved free, they could have achieved forgiveness and atonement and be in purgatory right now, right? you don't know you can't be sure but you can be sure about suicides why no opportunity for repentance it's not possible the act that led the, the act of their death is their sin in the moment of death they commit a mortal sin which is murder right they kill someone in the moment of their death and it is not possible for them to repent of it afterwards, right? Because there's no afterwards; they're already dead. So again, that's why. In it was it was uh, the and the medievals are very logical about things like this. They uh, that we we tend to put feelings above logic sometimes, or to resist logic for the sake of feelings. It's not that they never did that, um, but they really liked logically worked out systems. And that's why, um, uh, that's why according to the rigid logic, uh, you know, the, the almost inescapable logic, um, of, uh, the medieval moral system suicides are, they, they all of them go to hell. That's, that is, that was the doctrine. And that's the reason behind the doctrine. Um, uh, yeah, Stephen. I was thinking about that loophole too. Uh, could they, like, you know, stab themselves and then while they're exsanguinating, repent? <laughs> I mean, look. On the one hand, Stephen, that's exactly the that that question has to be asked somewhere. Stephen, I would bet you $5 that there is a medieval moralist who asked and answered that question. Um, because this is exactly the kind of question that they were always interested in. Um, they didn't like loopholes and they liked to think it through. Or slow poison, Jennifer. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, oh, right. Or Bruce says, if you jump from a large, a high enough height, uh, you could conceivably have time to repent while you're falling. I, I admittedly admittedly, but it's true david um it's not just about repentance you've got you've gotta uh confess to a priest as well um but see even there there can be exceptions um the uh, it is not necessarily true that anyone who does not do final confession and receive last rites is in hell i mean if you like just because you like have a heart attack and fall off your horse one day um you know and die does not mean you're in hell like so the uh uh the mediation of a priest is important but it's not the same it 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 doesn't achieve the same kind of uh, like logical necessity uh as the other um yeah yeah um Right now, I mean, there are lots of uh, ways that one can die suddenly without the opportunity to uh, uh, to, to to be shriven uh, before one when uh, one, uh, one, when one dies. Um, yeah, yeah. Jennifer, um, what's the benefit of being buried in consecrated ground? Mm. There are like superstitions about that, but it's there. There's no mechanism there. What happens to your body after death, isn't going to affect the destiny of your soul. Um, remember, notice Dante got rid of that. Remember that was true, for Virgil, right? Those who died and were unburied, um, were were, um, they're lingering outside of Hades, wishing they could get in, right? Um, Dante removes the unburied, and replaces it. Remember with the with the, the non-committal. Um, So the whole question of, like, what happens to your corpse after death, um, Dante certainly seems to be removing uh, from the equation. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Of course both David and Williams are thinking of the natural like uh, uh, the uh, the uh, you know the importance of the consecrated ground it has to, to do with protecting against vampirism but that is a different conversation that we will not have at this time <laughs> uh, but I'm not seeing it wrong anyway um okay uh, so <laughs> anyway so again but I, although you know I'm laughing and again I, I please I hope that Nobody thinks that I'm taking the the question of suicide lightly. And as I said, I understand the way in which uh, this is, you know, this whole canto can be a really sort of triggering thing for people. But um, as readers of Dante, we are going to need to take a coldly logical look at the situation and see how it fits into uh, the whole system, into the big picture that... um, Uh, that Dante is describing here. Um, Okay. Refreshing the fame, though, back to that question. Um, I. All I can say is that it is interesting to me. It is interesting to me that. Virgil seems to be in favor of this. Interesting to me on a couple different levels. A, it, it matters, for real? I mean, if you had told me, right, like blindfold on before I read the book for the first time, if you'd asked me, does Virgil, like somebody says, oh, like we should tell good stories about the dead folks in hell back up on Earth to increase their reputation among the living. Does that matter? Much is that a good thing, or does it does it not matter? if you'd asked me before I'd have said no, 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 of course he's read he you know everybody boethius right? it's all in boethius no fame is fleeting and 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 deceptive it doesn't matter, but I'd be wrong right because Virgil talks like it does matter, so that's one level in which it's interesting and not quite what I would have expected. The second reason that it's interesting and not quite what I would have expected uh is that um like we this kind of pity, this idea of doing a good turn to the damned soul, right? Like even the kind of pity that Virgil is showing is that, wasn't it Virgil who explained that everybody who's down here in circle seven and below are the objects of the special anger of the almighty? Virgil is showing pity or expressing pity in any case. Maybe not showing so much with the whole, yeah, break off a branch and see what happens thing. But anyway, expressing it, uh, saying that he feels it. Um, but is that a good thing? Maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe both of these things are signs of Virgil not quite getting it. I'm not sure. Let's keep going, see what we think. Okay. Uh, So, of course, the guy is a political guy. Again, he was a servant of of Frederick. Wasn't it Frederick? Anyway, one of the Holy Roman emperors. Um, And uh, so he's... Which means, remember, politically, he's on the good side from Dante's perspective. Dante is pro-monarchist, down with the popes, uh, in the uh, political world of, uh, uh, you know, 13th to 14th century Italy. Um, So... Politically speaking, this guy is one of the good guys, not one of the bad guys like Farinata or Filippo Argenti uh, that he met earlier on. Um, Okay, so here's his explanation of how things work. My mind, because of its disdainful temper, believing it could flee disdain through death—this is the tree talking uh, still—made me unjust against my own just self. I swear to you by the peculiar roots of this thorn bush, I never broke my faith with him who was so worthy, with my lord. So, like after this guy's death, people have been bad mouthing him, right? People have been saying that he was a traitor uh, to the emperor, and he's like, no, 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 no. Um, I was unjust, but only against myself, right? In committing suicide, I was unjust, but uh, I was unjust against my own just self i swear to you by the peculiar roots of this thorn bush i never broke my faith with him who was so worthy with my lord if one of you returns into the world then let him help my memory which still lies prone beneath the battering of envy the poet waited briefly then he said to me since he is silent do not lose this chance but speak and ask what you would know and i do you continue ask of him whatever you believe i should request i cannot So much pity takes my heart. Um, Dante can't even ask questions because he is also overcome with pity for this soul. Who's being done wrong? Not in hell, as presumably divine justice knew what it was doing, but on Earth. Right. With his reputation, which is being remedied as we speak. Right um um Ver, uh dante is a Overcome by his pity. Is this a good thing? It feels like a good thing, right? Just like, and that's a really squishy way to say it, but just as the Filippo Argenti incident felt all wrong, right? Uh, You know, uh, this doesn't feel wrong. But I don't know. I'm always I'm always nervous. I'm always nervous. Like, does that mean I'm the sucker here? Like, uh, am I um just as I think there is a little bit of suckering going on back in Canto 5. Right? I, I, I as I said before, I think that if we read the story of Paolo and Francesca and we come out of it saying like, Oh, the beautiful love affair, like, oh, that's so sad, like what their love was so beautiful. Then we're 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 we're, we're tumbling, right? we're 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 tumbling around the second circle, right? Um, not that it's a joke. If it's a joke, it's a very dark joke. But the joke's on us, right? If we're thinking that way, that's what I mean. Like by being suckered. Uh, so I, I don't and I don't know if that's what's happening here. Um, and I will say that I feel. I have a particularly difficult time um uh, I have a particularly difficult time with this one in this context uh because I personally within my own cultural context, do feel strongly inclined to feel pity towards people who commit suicide uh and so therefore. I am the more naturally inclined to side with Virgil and Dante and their expressions of pity here, but I am not confident that my own feelings and my societal values are steering me. Right. If you see what I mean, like it, it feels good. It feels right, but I'm not sure that it's actually giving me the correct steer. Do you see what I mean by that? This often happens. I mean, this often happens. Um, And this is definitely a place I mean I am I am aware of the fact that this is one of those places where there is a major um, disjunction between my culture and Dante's culture right that like the the visceral reaction to the concept of suicide is very different in the modern world and in um, and in the medieval world I'm not saying it's completely it's not like people didn't get sad when somebody they knew committed suicide, right? It's, it's not like they, you know, in many ways they would have responded to like the suicide of a family member in, in, in similar ways to the way that modern people react to the suicide of a family member. I'm not saying it's utterly different, but there would have been very significant differences. They certainly would have felt some things that modern people would not feel. Um... So anyway um so I'm not sure what to do I'm not in the end I I'm not sure I'm not sure what to do <clears throat> I'm not sure what to do either with their pity or with the question of shame of the of the reputation of the tree dude um and the restoration of his reputation it's not that that's a bad thing i mean it's just it's it's i mean if i you know accepting the framework of the narrative here it's truth right it's you know so like letting people that people should know what really happened instead of what didn't happen that they should know the truth instead of lies is good like i'm not saying there's anything wrong with going back and doing this but um The thing that is a stumbling block for me is the idea that the ultimate status of the tree is changed in any substantive way by this correction, right? Especially when we get into the description of what happens. Then he began again. Imprisoned spirit, so may this man do freely what you ask. May it please you to tell us something more of how the soul is bound into these knots, and tell us if you can, if anyone can ever find his freedom from these limbs. Is anybody ever make it from being a tree, a suicide tree, to being, you know, a real boy again? At this the trunk breathed violently. Then that wind came became this voice. You shall be answered promptly. When the savage spirit quits the body from which it has torn itself, then Minos sends it to the seventh maw. It falls into the wood, and there's no place to which it is allotted, but wherever fortune has flung that soul, that is the space where even as a grain of spelt, it sprouts. Grain of spelt is a is a like a grain of wheat. Okay. It's a particular kind of grain of wheat, but I don't know much about spelt. Anyway, okay. So we're going to go on to the next slide in just a second because he's going to talk about the bigger things too, or the like more eternal things as well. Um, but first, okay, so how does it work? Randomness. There's no place to which it's allotted, right? The soul is just chucked down into the seventh ring and it falls somewhere by fortune, right? Wherever fortune has flung that soul, it doesn't have a designated place. Why? It has abdicated its designated place. Right? Um, When the savage spirit quits the body from which it has torn itself. So the act of suicide is the spirit tearing itself from tearing itself from the body. Um, Again, it's not a bodily sin, it's a spiritual sin. Um, it tears itself from the body. It, it commits this ultimate violence against itself. But you see the violence against it's not just just as violence against others is not just murder. So violence against the self is not just murder also. Right. Yes, it is the act of murder. And everyone here is a murderer and also a murder victim. Um, but there's a deeper sense in which they are committing violence. Against themselves, they are unseating themselves. Uh, they are removing themselves. Uh, spoiler: When we get up to paradise, we will find that all the blessed souls have an appointed spot. There's a seat reserved. It's like the round table, you know, with the uh, where you know Merlin in gold letters puts the names of folks on the back in advance, um, or you know, and the names appear like that's that's um, in advance in some cases, less so in others. Um, it's kind of how heaven is, right? There's a, there's a seat. For everybody. Um, When you... When the savage spirit quits the body from which it has torn itself, it has no seat anymore. It just drops down into the wood. And wherever it has been flung, it sprouts. So it grows. So it bears fruit. Um, Yeah. Um... Yeah. Now, David, of course, I can't help but remember that, too. We were just talking about fortune a little while ago. Uh, and David says that, um, you know, we uh, shouldn't we take the invocation of fortune as an indication that God has a plan for where things go, even if the souls can't perceive it. Um, probably. Probably. Yeah. Um, maybe. Um But of course, David, it's also possible that where the seed falls is genuinely random as a consequence of, or even as an expression of being cast out by God, right? But okay. Okay. But then what happens? It rises as a sapling, a wild plant, and then the harpies feeding on its leaves cause pain. And for that pain, provide event like other souls. We shall seek out the flesh that we have left, but none of us shall wear it. It is not right for any man to have what he himself has cast aside. We'll drag our bodies here. They'll hang in this sad wood, each on the stump of its vindictive shade. This, for my money, is one of the most horrible things in all of hell. The resurrection of the body is a universal thing. And we've heard people talk about it before. Dante's asked a couple questions about this. What's going to happen after the resurrection of the body? Um, The souls in hell are all bodiless right now. They're all intangible spirits because they don't have their bodies anymore. But the day will come when their bodies will be raised and their spirits will be rejoined to their bodies. And as Virgil has already told us, that will be for them the perfection of of their suffering, right? But the suicides won't be reunited with their bodies or they will, but they won't be reconnected, right? So their spirits will go and seek out their flesh, but they will not wear the flesh since they have cast it away because they have destroyed themselves, because they ripped their own spirits out Of their body, their choice, as we've seen in other cases, their choice will be perpetuated in their punishment in hell. And their choice, their sinful choice, was savagely to rip their own spirits out of their own bodies. And that separation, the separation between soul and body that they chose in the act, will be perpetuated continually. Not just by having their bodies right there, but not being able to be connected to their bodies, their souls will remain in the form of trees and their bodies will be crucified on the trees. Um, and uh, yeah, I agree, Bruce, that is dark with a capital D um their own bodies will be crucified on the tree they will become the trees upon which their bodies are eternally crucified um they will carry their bodies eternally but be unable to be joined by them and in the the joining right the nearness of the body right the almost joining of body and soul that will itself be a cause of continual torment for the tree right the body presumably is not going to be experiencing suffering probably because the soul's not connected to it um, but this the body itself, the abandoned body becomes itself the instrument of torment um, yeah I say crucifixion because it's hanging on the tree yeah uh, they'll hang in this sad wood each on the stump of its vindictive shade. Um, Perhaps I'm overstepping there, David, but it like, hanging on the tree is, that's it's very crucifixion-like in any case. Um, uh, It's also Judas-like, I will admit. Um, It also seems like each one of them sort of recapitulates not the betrayal of Judas, but the suicide of Judas. Um... uh, yeah yeah um yeah but Stephen yeah it's like the whether it's hanging in either case it's gonna i mean it's gonna hurt the tree it's 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 gonna i mean i think the the principle remains um uh but uh i don't know, crucifixion still just seems to be seems to me a more apt sort of thing, but anyway um Uh, But yes, it's a punishment for the tree, not for the one hanging. So even there, Stephen, we see like a reversal, right? Um, Anyway. um, Back to pity. If we go back a second, the question which led to this revelation, right? Virgil's question, Imprisoned spirit, so may this man do freely what you... In order so that this guy can, you know, Dante, that is, can, you know, tell the truth about you up in the world when he gets back. May it please you to tell us something more of how the soul is bound in these knots and tell us if you can, if anyone can ever find his freedom from these limbs. One might paraphrase that. Will God ever feel pity for them? Will God ever show mercy to the suicides? And the answer? No. No. They too, like the other souls in hell, will perpetuate. They are left to continue uh, and perpetuate the choices they made in life, the violent, those who have done the the violent against themselves continually recapitulate that act of self-destruction. And this is what brings me back to, so the pity. Is that good or bad? You know, if we're feeling pity for the suicides, spiritually speaking, again, from the within the framework of the poem, the moral framework of the poem, is that a bad thing? Is the pity of Virgil and Dante here as bad a sign as their anger against Filippo Argenti? It's not the same. I, it's not. I don't think it's the same situation as that. But I can't help but wonder. I can't help but wonder. Um, but pity seems to me the overall. seems to me the overall tone or note, I guess, of Canto 13. Um, notice also, another thing that I find interesting about it is the. the way pain is inflicted being a tree is bad. I mean, cause you're meant to be a person. So if you're a tree now, that means you're, you know, you've been pushed down the great chain of being Remember I talked about cumulative souls, right? How like we have the same souls as, um, you know, we have the same souls as plants and we have the same souls as animals. But we can do more, right? You know, it's, you know, um, we can do everything they can do, but we can also do something else. And that's kind of how the, you know, the way it works, all the way down to rocks. Um, they, they've been demoted, right? Straight past animals and down to plants. And that's bad, ontologically speaking. Um, while retaining the awareness of humans. But, it's, but that's not their only punishment the physical pain they experience when damage is done to the branches, right? The pain they experience when you break off the branch. And then of course, right after this, we're going to have the two people who still have human shape. And one of whom is going to go like diving and tripping into a bush and he's going to break it all the pieces. Right. I mean, so there's like all these branches like broken and hanging off this bush. And after he leaves, well, gets ripped to shreds. Um, The bush is like, ow, that really hurts. You know, like uh, that. Why did you inflict all this suffering on me? Um, In other words, the pain experienced by the trees down here seems to be optional. Transitory. Uh, It's not like it's very different from standing in a river of fire fiery blood, right? Like, the pain might be at different levels, right, depending on where you're standing for those who are violent against others, but the pain is a constant, right? There's no escaping it. There's also no making it worse, right? Um, Unless, I guess, you get shot in the face by a centaur, but generally, there's no making it worse. Um, Here, until something breaks off a branch they seem to be fine. Now the Harpies come around and do this a lot anyway, so like, they're bad news. Um, it's not like you could totally, permanently escape pain Um, but, um Uh (laughs) Yeah, Leanne says they've descended into mad veggiosity. Yeah, it's like mad bestiality, except uh, more green Um, yeah, yeah. And and, uh, and so, yeah, yeah. David is, of course, remembering the harpies as well. I mean, there are creatures down here whose job it is to rip trees up on the regular. So, um, again, it's not like they're going to be escaping pain completely. But, um, but, again, I bring this up as relevant to the pity question, right? Because here's what I'm trying to get at. We see souls down here in two different invariable states of suffering. That's the thing that I'm, that's the thing that I'm trying to get at. There's variable states, right? There's the steady state, the just being a tree state, right? And then there's the, I'm a broken, bleeding tree in pain state, right? Um, so there's, and so where, as we might feel pity for the trees, we, there's like this extra surge of pity for the poor bush after the dude runs over it and the dog runs over it and it's all broken and shattered, right? And, and, and it's lying there like, ow, ow. I mean, there's like this extra spike of pity, right? Um, the sufferings of people in almost every other um, circle that we've seen are even, right? Uh, they're... Constant. Um, what I'm pointing at here is that, it invo- evoking invoking these sort of spikes of pity, seems to be one of the features of this canto and of this and of our encounters in this circle, um, which again so. I I again can't help but feel that my own response of pity is being aggressively manipulated by Dante uh, throughout this canto Um, and um, I and I'm not sure what that means I'm not sure if Dante's trying to teach me a lesson about that Okay, no, I think he might. I think he's definitely trying to teach me a lesson, but I'm not sure which direction he's teaching. Am I being cautioned against this kind of pity or am I being enjoined to this kind of pity? I'm not 100% certain. Um, so there's my dilemma. But we can't forget it's not just trees and it's not just suicides that are punished down here in this zone, right? Behind these two, uh, behind these two, uh, so, that the, so these two, hu- two naked human figures come running across, right? Um, and they're being pursued by black hounds. Behind these two, black bitches filled the wood, and they were just as eager and as swift as greyhounds that have been let off their leash. They set their teeth in him where he had crouched, and piece by piece those dogs dismembered him and carried off his miserable limbs." Then he who was my escort took my hand. He led me to the lacerated thorn that wept in pain where it was bleeding, broken. Oh, Jacopo, it said, de Santo Andrea, what have you gained by using me as a screen? Am I to blame for your indecent life? So the naked people, who get ripped up by hounds here and in the process end up causing more pain to the trees are also violent against themselves. What do they do? you remember what they did? We were told, Virgil mentioned it before. What are the non-tree people guilty of? Violence against themselves. But like, what is their actual act? Do you remember? Virgil mentioned it a while back. Squandering their patrimony. They squandered their patrimony, so just as the violent against others might have ended up in the in the sticks, but they ended up down here in seventh circle instead. These dudes, uh, you know, these other dudes in the you know back with Nessus. Um, so those who squandered their patrimony, were like, wait, aren't they prodigal? Isn't that what prodigality is? Isn't that exactly what the prodigal son did? Was squander his patrimony? Um, yes. But again, it's the same thing, right? Like, presumably a murderer was also wrathful, or like many murderers are wrathful, um, but they didn't end up in the wrath place. They ended up down here in the violence against others place. So, too, yes, those who squander their patrimony are prodigal, um, but uh, those who... um, but they, they don't end up just with the avaricious rolling boulders up there in the fourth circle. They're down here, and they're in the violence, the violent against themselves. Um, squandering your patrimony. Of course, this is, this is, it's a subset of prodigality, but it's, it's not just any old garden variety prodigality. It is like suicide. Um, it is one thing to go from rags to riches and back to rags again. That's perfectly normal. Right. So, you know, a kid from a poor neighborhood who gets drafted in the first round of the NFL draft and makes millions of dollars as an NFL player uh, and then blows all of his money on fast cars and strip clubs uh, and ends up poor at the end has is not going to end up here. He's not committed fundamental violence against himself. He was just prodigal. He's going to be pushing boulders, most likely. Um, again, not knowing it, but maybe he'd repent. Of course, but anyway, that's that's what that's garden variety prodigality. Uh, this is squandering your patrimony. So you have your inheritance from your father, right? You have your family lands, your family business, your family um, inheritance, and you blow that. That. Is this that is like unto suicide. That is violence against yourself. That is, in its way, like the equivalent of thieves, right? Um, just as murderers of other people are obviously violent against others, but thieves who break in and steal other people's stuff are also violent against others, even if they don't actually harm them or injure them physically. So those who squander their own patrimony are also violent against themselves, like the suicides. Now, notice... I don't think they're gonna be without their bodies when it comes time, uh, you know, when it when it comes the last trumpet call, uh, because they, they, they're still in physical human shape here, right? Um, they are not guilty of the violent separation of their souls from their own bodies. And so that isn't what's gonna be perpetuated. What is perpetuated? They're ripped up into pieces and dragged off in, other, in lots of different directions just like their patrimony right just like their family estate just like their family inheritance uh right as it gets squandered and dragged off by different uh you know uh different different of their uh, uh of their creditors right so their spiritual bodies down here uh, are torn apart and dragged uh, and dragged around um and uh, yeah David, I agree their nudity, I think, is significant here, um, uh, as he says they've thrown over their wealth so they don't, they don't get to cover themselves. Um, yes, yes, um, they have they have nothing, right They have nothing and then and the the representation of themselves, their their apparent bodies are being ripped up and torn apart and dragged away. Um, Jennifer says, do they reassemble? Uh, yeah. I think so. I doubt that that dude, Jacopo de, de Santo Andrea, was just permanently annihilated, and I suspect that his uh, he's going to reassemble in order to be ripped apart again. That's my we're not told that explicitly, but yeah, I do assume that there's a reassembly process. Um, uh you know how much that looks like terminator 2 i'm not sure jennifer but uh but it's they yes they reassemble they reassemble i i i, I would assume they do since um a short term um a short term punishment like that which is quickly over uh which is bad but quickly over does not it seems to be counterindicated uh in the landscape of hell in general um And yes, it should remind us of Prometheus, whose liver grows back every night so that the eagle can rip it out again uh, every morning. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Yep. Yep. Agreed. Jocelyn, I agree. Kind of like Groundhog Day, except a horrible version of Groundhog Day. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, Good. Good. Um, Okay we won't move on to, we did two of the three zones of uh, the violent uh, here tonight. We'll move on to the violent against God next time, which is appropriate because the violent against God is itself going to be subdivided into three different zones. Uh, So we'll say we probably won't even get through the whole violent against God section next time, but we'll at least, uh, we'll at least begin it. So, Thank you guys for joining me tonight. Uh, uh, This has been, as always, a really fun discussion. Thank you for helping me uh, to work through some of my ideas here tonight and for giving so many of your own good ideas. Uh, And I look forward next week uh, to continuing our discussion. So thanks very much, everybody. And I will see you guys later. Bye now.